Today's podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. I use Zencaster to record the Tally Room podcast and it's an invaluable tool. I record pretty much every episode of this show remotely with my guests joining me from wherever they happen to be. Zencaster allows us to record with high quality sound even if the internet connection isn't the best. It records a high quality version on the local desktop and then uploads it when the internet connection allows, meaning that the audio the listeners hear is usually better than what I can hear when I'm recording. It also allows for recording video. I use it to be able to view my guests, but you can also record video in 1080p. On one or two occasions, I've used Zoom instead, and you really notice a difference. It's super easy to use Zencaster. I set up a link for a recording and send it to my guests, and we're getting started in minutes. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TallyRoom, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting needs. It's time to share your story. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. When we're analysing elections, we often divide the population up by age. That is a big factor that seems to have relevance when it comes to how people vote, who they vote for. And it also has a great deal of relevance for how policy affects people's lives at different stages of their lives with different experiences. And often when we're looking at this stuff, you see trends around voters of a particular age being more likely to vote for a particular party, but we don't really know what that means. How much are those trends that are going to last for someone's entire lifetime, or are they things that just are there because of their particular life stage that they're at now and won't be there in the future? My guest today is Sean Ratcliffe. Sean is the Principal of Accent Research, Honorary Associate and Lecturer at the University of Sydney, and he's written on this topic. Hello, Sean. Hi, Ben. So, Sean, you've written a research paper for Accent Research about this topic, about the growing generational gap in Australian politics. Uh, The paper explores the widening gap between voting patterns for older generations, like the baby boomers, and the youngest generations, millennials and particularly Gen Z. Sean, how big has the gap become between the oldest generations and the youngest generations when it comes to voting in, let's say, federal elections? It's massive. I don't think there's any other word that does it justice. Uh, It's truly become quite big. At the 2022 federal election, uh, where 36% of voters voted for the coalition and about 33% voted for the Labor Party and uh, 12% voted for the Greens, uh, if we go and look at Gen Z, about 22%, according to the best survey data we have available to us, voted for the coalition. So that's 22% of Gen Z voters voted for the coalition versus 36% for all voters. Uh, similar number of Gen Z voters voted for the Labor Party as, as everyone else, 34 versus about 33. But Greens voting was huge amongst Gen Z voters. So about 31% voted for the Greens uh, versus 12% for all the electorate as a whole. So we're seeing you know, nearly, not quite, but nearly three times as many Gen Zs voting for the Greens as the electorate as a whole and about 50% lower coalition voting. And what about the same numbers for baby boomers? Yeah, so baby boomers, as you might expect, are a bit more likely to vote for the coalition, so 45% versus 36, and slightly less likely to vote for the Labor Party, about 30% versus 33%. But where they're they're quite different is Greens voting, so about 5% versus 12%. So that would mean on a two-party preferred basis, although all your stats are on primary vote, you would expect it to be quite a bit stronger for the coalition than uh, the overall national vote was. Yeah, so what we find is that the majority of baby boomers 
voted the coalition for which the party preferred. So if the electorate was entirely consisted of, of baby boomers, the coalition would have won the last election. And for the Gen Z, we're looking at a two-party preferred for Labor in the 60s. If it had only been Gen Z, it would have been a sort of Labor-Greens coalition, sort of three-way tie. Yeah, it would have been a Labor-Greens landslide if it was just Gen Z. What sort of share of the population are we talking about for these groups? Because the youngest Gen Z citizens aren't eligible to vote yet. At the other end, there's obviously a large number of baby boomers. You know, some of them would have passed away, but most of that generation is still alive, still voting. You know, the youngest baby boomers would still be in the workforce. What are the kind of overall proportions of these groups in terms of making up the electorate? Yeah, so Gen Z still relatively small as a percentage of the electorate, but uh, millennials now make up nearly as much of the electorate as baby boomers. And within a couple of electoral cycles, we'll see millennials being the biggest generation. Baby boomers will obviously, as a cohort, slowly shrink as a percentage of the electorate over time. Now, this takes decades to fully play out. But uh, we're getting pretty close to Gen Z and millennials making up half the electorate. So fairly soon, we'll see millennials and younger be a majority of the electorate. And it's probably also just worth clarifying what sort of age range we're talking here because millennial is often used as kind of a catch-all term for young people. But, you know, there are millennials in their 40s now, right? Like there'd be some millennials with adult children. What sort of age range, I think we all know baby boomers kind of ends in the early 60s and then we've got Gen X's covers of the 60s and the 70s in terms of year of birth. What sort of age range are we talking about for Gen Z and millennials? Yeah, so I've used an ABS definition, the one the Bureau of Statistics uses just because that seemed like the fairest way to define it because, as you noted, there are a few different ways to define the generations and there's no like one correct method for doing so. So for, for these purposes, I've defined Gen Z as anyone that was born in 1996 or later uh, and, and millennials as those born between 1981 and 1995. So we're talking about an electorate where we're getting close to a point where millennials and Gen Zs, which at the moment is kind of everyone younger than their early 40s, is coming close to making up half the electorate. Those are people that the very oldest of those people would have been first voting in the like the late 90s, but obviously many of those people have come into political adulthood in the Howard years or later, you know, in recent decades, and frankly, some of them were born in the Howard years. How does that compare? So we've been saying there's a big generational gap between Gen Z and millennials on one end and baby boomers at the other end. Um, how does that compare to the historical record for um, elections, you know, over the last half century? What we find is, contrary to the received political wisdom, which is that young people are always left-wing. So, so there's the common wisdom that young people are always lefting. If you're not a socialist when you're young, you don't have a heart. You know, and if you're not conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain. Right? Older people are always people always become conservative as they age. But what we found is that uh, that's not quite the case. Uh, so, so based on the the best data we have available to us, and, and it's obviously no data is perfect, but it looks like there wasn't much of an age gap in the late 1960s. Despite the idea that the young baby boomers were all left-wing hippies, anti-Vietnam War, voting for the Labor Party or the left, uh, and that wasn't the case. Young people weren't any significantly more likely to vote, uh, or less likely, I should say, to vote for the coalition than those that were 65 and older in the late 1960s. Um, so there wasn't really much of an age gap, and the age gap looks like it was relatively small up until the 1990s, and that's really when we see the age gap open up in Australian federal politics. 
from your paper, you kind of go through a bunch of the theories, which we'll go through here, uh, that could explain that generational gap. They overall mostly fall into two broad categories, right? Cohort effects, where you kind of treat a group of people as they age and watch the particular experience that group has had compared to other cohorts at the same age. And then lifestyle cycle impacts you know that the people of a particular age have particular impacts on their life that mean they might vote a particular way cohort theory would suggest a little bit more that a particular group of people will be more stable with their voting intention as they get older and thus as the electorate changes over time and the lifestyle effect would kind of assume that people of a certain age will vote a particular way and as those people age they will start to look more like you know the 30 year olds of today when in 20 years from now will look more like the 50-year-olds of today than they will look like themselves today. Do you want to go a little bit into those kinds of approaches and how much they make sense? Yeah, the reason we looked at these two different explanations for the partisan age gap in Australian politics was which explanation has the evidence to support it would really change the likely political implications. If it's life cycle effects that are driving the age gap, then as you note, they're likely temporary and we wouldn't expect them to necessarily have a lasting impact on Australian politics. So when we talk about life cycle effects, we're talking about things like, um, do you own your own home? Do you have a job uh, or are you still in school? Do you have children? Are you married? Uh, you know, do you pay taxes? Do you live at home? Yeah, yeah, right. So the things so that we traditionally associate with sort of coming into adulthood, uh, taking on responsibility, and that are usually associated with people shifting to the political right as they age. So the explanation for ageing into conservatism that life cycle effects um, sort of provides is that it it's not that we just become more conservative as we get older. It's not a natural product of ageing. It's that as we age, most of us take on some or all of these responsibilities, and those responsibilities tend to drive people on average to the right. You know, you, if you, you get a job, you earn more money, you pay tax, you have get married, buy a house and have children. These are the sort of things that might make you more conservative on average. So that's the life cycle effects. And that's the sort of explanation that's traditionally associated with the received wisdom that we become more conservative as we age. It's a nice, neat explanation. It makes a lot of sense conceptually. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people assume it's true and find it convincing. But we wanted to test that because there are reasons to believe that it's not true because we've seen different generational groups behave differently and have different political preferences. And so if it was all about the life cycle effects, we wouldn't expect to see big cohort differences. We would expect every generation to look the same at the same age or very similar at the same age. So cohort effects are the other possible explanation, and that is that each generational group has a different set of experiences as they age into the polity. So we're socialised differently. And now that's not to say that every member of every cohort receives the same socialisation, but there may be broad similarities. So when the baby boomers grew up in the you know, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, they experienced one set, on average, one set of political socialisation. They all mostly grew up under the Menzies government with maybe the, the Whitlam government for the tail end of that generation. You know, they had, you know, if they're lucky, one, two or three television channels, you know, a few radio stations, no internet. They grew up with cheaper housing, but then also much more expensive consumer goods. And they grew up under the Cold War. Like all these different things influenced their socialisation. And I should also note, they probably compared to younger generations, at least in the big cities in Australia now, grew up in what would be arguably be a much more monocultural Australia. 
while people growing up today, and I include most millennials, particularly millennials that grew up in the bigger cities and a large share of Gen Z, they've grown up in a much different society. We've got a much more fragmented media environment. People are much more likely to stay in formal education well into their 20s. Um, not everyone, but much more likely, while baby boomers were much more likely to leave school when they were 14, 15, 16, and much less likely to attend university. Most millennials and Gen Z grew up in very diverse communities, you know, much more likely to go to school and have friends that might have been of East Asian descent or South Asian descent or Middle East, um, if you weren't yourself, right? And many more millennials and Gen Z uh, are like more likely to have these backgrounds than, than baby boomers who grew up in Australia. So we've got sets and, and as I mentioned the, the fragmented media environment is likely plays a big role too we a lot of millennials and, and pretty much all gen Z that have grown up in Australia are more likely to have grown up with many more television stations many more radio stations and the internet which has changed the sort of information that was available to them growing up which has likely led to a different set of political preferences and a way of understanding the world yeah, I mean, when I think about um, the world that my kids growing up in compared to how I grew up or my parents grew up, and they're all different. And some of those are just sort of unique choices that we've made. You know, I lived in the outer suburbs and my kids growing up kind of in the middle suburbs of Sydney, much denser area, much more walkable. Um, and some of that might just be about the individual person, but I think overall probably on average kids growing up in Sydney today are more likely to be growing up in apartments and, you know, dense areas than kids born in the 80s like myself and obviously the communication technology and the internet and stuff is the big one there but it makes sense that that would have an impact on how those people grow up and not just that the 20 year olds of today when they're 60 will have had a very different life than the 60 year olds of today yeah absolutely i mean one example i like to um, make is uh I grew up in Sydney like you in the outer suburbs, but not the most diverse part of Sydney, I'd say. But even still, you know, I went to high school with kids that they or their parents were originally from India, uh, Sri Lanka, China, right? lots of different parts of the world, right? It wasn't, as I said, the most diverse part of Sydney, but we still, you know, had a reasonable amount of diversity, you know, my high school which was the local public school. My dad grew up, went to his local public school too in Adelaide in the 60s. He went to high school. And I think, you know, the Polish kid was the most the most exotic person at the school, right? There was no one that wasn't European or of European descent at his high school. And, you know, I'm not going to overgeneralize from my experience and, and, and my parents' experience. There's probably a little bit of that is Adelaide versus Sydney, but much more of that's the 60s versus the 80s, right? The neighborhood he grew up in now, there's lots of Vietnamese people these days, right? Like, even where he grew up, right, you would not in Adelaide today, if you went to the local high school, <laughs> you wouldn't go to a high school that was 100% people of European ancestry, right? Like it's almost impossible now if you live in a major Australian city, at least, to go to a school where there's where everyone's white. It would be incredibly rare if you go to a public school, at least. So that's reflective, I think, of what has been a major societal change over the last 50 or 60 years. Okay, so those are the theories. What have you actually found? Like, uh, how much do those theories stack up? So what we find is there's elements of truth to both. Life cycle and cohort effects do explain differences in the politics of both groups. We started off by picking out a couple of the key ones. So we looked at housing, for instance. Uh, so millennials are less likely to own their own home, for instance, than Gen X and baby boomers were at the same age. The Bureau of Statistics has looked at different censuses and looked at the generational cohorts at the same age and looked at some of the differences in sort of where they've been at the milestones 
at the same age, at the ages of 25 to 39. And millennials, when they're aged 25 to 39, about 55% own their own home. If we compare that to Gen X, it was 62% and baby boomers were 66%. So fewer millennials are owning their own home at the same age as the prior cohorts and they're less likely to do so. Probably fewer will ever own their own home. And that is associated with different political preferences. So if we look at um, millennials who own their own home, for instance, uh, at the 2022 election, about 32% voted for the coalition, while those that didn't own their own home, about 18% voted for the coalition. Uh, So big, big difference. And a lot of the Difference went to the Labor Party and the Greens. So home-owning millennials, 34% voted for Labor versus 39% of millennials that didn't own their own home and 15% of home-owning millennials voted for the Greens versus 20% of those that didn't own their own home. When I've looked at some of the demographic analysis from the federal election, I think that's probably one of the biggest divergences you see in terms of a binary choice. I think... From the numbers I looked at when I was combining Labor and the Greens, the Labor-Greens combined vote, there was like a 20-point gap or something. And correct me if I've got that number wrong. It seems like you have it in front of you right now. But about a t- we're talking low 40s compared to high 50s, right, um, between renters and homeowners. If you combine Labor and the Greens in the data we have, we've got 59% uh, of non-owners voted Labor or Greens versus uh, 49% of those that that do own. Right. I think the AES was even bigger than that. I think the AES had it at 41. Either way, big gap. Yeah, exactly. And and with Gen Z, which is a smaller group, so more uncertain the estimate, but we've got um, an even bigger gap. So we've got 37% uh, voting Labor and 34% voting Greens for those Gen Z that don't own their own home versus 25 and 21% for Gen Z homeowners so it's interesting that even amongst gen z homeowners they're still a lot more likely to vote greens than the rest of the population so home ownership doesn't explain it all so it's not all life cycle effects one thing that suggests is okay if people are less likely to own or it's delayed that may affect the likelihood that they'll vote for the coalition into the future but there are still differences even after we control for home ownership. So even if we did switch all millennials and Gen Z to owning at the same rate as Xs and boomers did at the same age, it's unlikely the political differences would disappear. There's other things as well. They'd shrink a bit but not disappear. Yeah, and so that's likely explained by the cohort effects. Before we move on to cohort effects, like just from a policy perspective, it does make sense, right? You think about housing, how expensive housing's become. Quite frankly, if you're a young person who owns your own home, you probably have an enormous mortgage too, which might be different to a, someone in their 50s who is just finishing paying off a mortgage they got a few decades ago. And so it does make sense that uh, that would be both a big motivating factor for people when they decide how they vote, but also something that maybe makes people a bit more radical, a bit more progressive about trying to find something different. Yeah. And I mean, we've got to assume that uh, particularly Gen Zs that own their own home look different to Gen Zs that don't. There's important compositional differences between members of the same generation that do and don't own, right? They're probably, they've got higher incomes or they've got greater family wealth and they're also often buying in different areas. Um, So there's a big difference between, you know, if you live in a rural area uh, versus inner city Sydney, for instance, in, in what it takes to be able to buy a property. I mean, if you're a Gen Z that is buying a property in the inner city, you probably haven't earned the money that you're using to buy that house, right? You're probably getting that money from someone else. There's an interesting idea as well. It's like maybe there's there's a lot more Gen Z homeowners in 
the rural areas or something. Okay, and then you get to cohort effects. Yeah, so these are the sort of more intrinsic differences between the generations. So some of the things we looked at were things like religion, uh, whether or not people had a university degree, whether they identified as LBGTQ+, so gay, bi, trans, um, and also whether they identified as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And there are big, big differences between the generations. So uh, millennials are more likely to have a university degree than early generations, not a big surprise there. So about 41% of millennials have a degree. That's a bit higher than Gen X, which is about 32%, and about double baby boomers. So, so a big difference. Gen Z are a bit lower at this stage, but that's because they're younger, so they're less, they don't have as much time uh, to get a degree yet. There's probably a lot of them who are uni students. They're like pre-graduates, right? They will eventually be a graduate, but they haven't done it yet. Yeah, and some people take a gap year or a couple of years before. So normally it's not until people hit about 30 that we see like that start to level off. But yeah, other differences are much bigger for Gen Z. So if we looked at religion, for instance, the percentage that don't have a religion, uh, for Gen Z, it's about 56%. It's about 53% for millennials, 38% for Gen X, and 31% for baby boomers. So millennials and Gen Z are much more likely to not have a religion than older generations. And then the one that really, I was actually quite surprised by this, um, is uh, identifying as LGBTQ+. So I knew that the rates were a bit higher for Gen Z than previous generations, but the gap surprised me. Um, So 17% of Gen Z identify as LGBTQ+, so they identify as some mix of, of gay, trans, or bi, or, 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 or some, anyone that's not identifying as, as essentially straight. Um, it's 9% for millennials, so substantially lower, 8% for Gen X, and 4% for baby boomers. The gap is huge there. And um, so nearly one in five of Gen Z uh, identifies LGBTQ+, and that has pretty substantial association with how they vote. So one thing we looked at was gender and sexuality by generation and how they voted. We had quite a big sample size, so we are really able to divvy up the data a bit into different groups. And the group that was particularly left-wing was Gen Z women that identify as LGBTQ+. So only 5% of Gen Z women that are LGBTQ+, voted for the coalition in 2022. 22% voted for Labor and 62% voted for the Greens. Uh, so, so pretty much the Greens' best demographic is young women that don't identify as, as Yeah, it seems like the Greens have that demographic lockdown. Yeah, and I think the important thing to know, because I think where some people's mind goes is, oh, but that's, that's a tiny segment of the population. But no, it's almost one in five Gen Z women, right? That's a decent chunk of that demographic. As that generation becomes a bigger share of the electorate, that's going to have significant electoral ramifications and I just and one of the reasons why I group this in with cohort effects is I don't see that identification changing right like most people that in their 20s identify as LGBTQ plus aren't probably gonna go and become straight right like obviously sexuality is somewhat fluid and can change a little bit but I doubt that one in five is going to drop back down to the rates of the other generations it seems implausible and if anything pattern we've seen so far is the share of people identifying as LGBTQ plus is actually going up over time. I don't know what the ceiling is for that, but, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that it's going to go backwards anytime soon. So, you know, what we've got here is something that's heavily associated with left-wing voting. And I'm not confident that that's going to totally flip and become either politically unimportant or favourable for the coalition in the near term. 
And, you know, the youngest Gen Z voters are still, I don't know if they're in primary school, but they're at least in high school, you know, they're not in the demographic yet. But that group is going to grow, you know, as a share of the electorate. And, I mean, there's no particular reason to imagine that the generation behind them will be less so in that area, although that's that's taking a big extrapolation about how, you know, today's eight-year-olds will vote when they're 30. But, like, that doesn't feel like a trend that's ended in terms of that share will probably get bigger. I don't like to play political prognosticator and make big, big, bold predictions about decades of the future. Um, and the next generation may be more conservative. I mean, we've seen in other countries, certainly, so in the 1980s, for instance, young voters are actually very Republican voting. So things can flip depending on what is happening in politics and in the world. So the next generation may be more conservative than Gen Z, and, and that's quite possible. But one way we can try and work out the likelihood of that is trying to understand what the mechanisms are that are driving the different politics of different generations. And certainly, you know, two of the big ones that, that I've pulled out here are housing and how people identify. Uh, in this case, that was their sexual identification. But we also see um, younger people are a little bit more likely to identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander than older. And so the numbers are, are smaller, but Gen Z are about three times more likely than baby boomers to identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And that's also associated with being more likely to vote for the left. So there's a number of ways that Gen Z are identifying, you know, both ethnically and sexually, that are associated at the moment with supporting parties of the left, either the Labor Party or particularly with Gen Z, the Greens. And while it's not impossible, you know, trying to think of the pathway through which those identifications either stop being politically important or become something that's favourable to the right, um, it would require major changes for that generation, I think, to go from being so massively left-wing to even equally split between the left and the right in the next decade or so. So does this mean the coalition can't win elections because all the young people are voting for the left? Uh, no, um, because there's still a lot of old people. They vote for the coalition in big numbers. And as I said, there are life cycle effects and they play a role too. And so I think it's plausible to see the life cycle effects move these generations to the right a bit. I think the concern for the coalition is it's not just life cycle effects. So I think people, some commentators comfort themselves by saying, oh, this is normal, they're young, they're going to be left wing. But once they, you know, get a job and pay taxes and, and get married and have kids and buy a house, they'll all be right wingers. Uh, and, and the answer to that is, well, no, even if they do all those things, they're not necessarily going to be right wingers if there's these other attributes or other ways they identify or other aspects of their socialization and their life that pull them to the left. Some will go to the right, but some will stay voting for parties of the left. Because even if you're not gay yourself, even if you're not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander yourself, as I mentioned earlier, the, the socialisation we experience growing up can affect your politics too. So even a white, male, straight, um, millennial or Gen Z, they've grown up with gay friends. They've grown up with friends from all around, you know, Vietnamese refugees and people from China and India and, and Latin America, you know, so especially if they grow up in one of the big cities, they've grown up with a more diverse range of peers, which is going to affect their politics, even if they don't have those characteristics and attributes themselves. So that's one of the reasons we see the big shift to the left with these generations isn't just that more of them are identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or LGBTQ+, it's that they know people. Even if that group gets more conservative as it gets older, you know, apologies to our older listeners, but, you know, the baby boomer generation, which is like underpinning the coalition vote now, 
don't have as long to live, right? Like, and they, you know, it is a gradual process that um, larger numbers of baby boomers will, will die off um, until in a few decades from now they'll will make up a much smaller share of the electorate. Um, and so it's a combination of those two effects, right? It's like they might be getting more conservative, um, but probably not enough to counterbalance. Yeah, that's right. So, so slowly the composition of the electorate will change. And it's going to take decades. Like, you know, the youngest baby boomers, a lot of them will live 20, 30 years more. So it's not going to happen overnight. But very slowly we'll see the baby boomers decline as a share of the electorate. And, I mean, that would happen even if they all kept living, right, because we're just seeing new voters age into the electorate. So even if every baby boomer that's alive now was immortal and, and never died, they would still shrink as a share of the electorate because see more Gen Zs age into the electorate and then the generation after them. So either way, the composition of the electorate changes. And even if Gen Z and millennials shift to the right at the same rate as Gen X, and at the moment it looks like they might be shifting to the right at a slower rate than Gen X, but let's say for argument's sake they shift to the right and vote for the coalition increasingly as they age at the same rate as Gen X did. The starting point is further to the left. When millennials and especially Gen Z are 21, they're voting for the coalition at lower rates than Gen X did at the same age. And I wonder, you talk about political socialisation, that, you know, the effects of having grown up in the current political environment where, frankly, the coalition is more conservative than it was when, you know, even in the the 90s, the 80s or earlier than that. And I, I do wonder if that also means that in the future, if the coalition wants to appeal to these voters, it's certainly not impossible by any means but it makes it a bit harder because there's that further distance between where the party is and where those voters have grown up i wonder if that's a factor you know that the coalition now very much is because it's appealing to that older baby boomer demographic it's kind of developing its policy agenda to appeal to them and that works for them now although they still lost the last election but mostly it works for them but that's going to start to work less and it might be a bit of a painful transition yeah i, I think that's possible and I, 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 I know there are some liberals that are conscious of this so just recently you know members of the new south party have have been particularly on housing trying to make appeals to younger people and that may in the future be successful uh, I think housing is certainly one possible area where where a party could appeal to younger voters, particularly in expensive, well, most of the east coast of Australia is pretty expensive. So <laughs> I think it would have widespread appeal for anyone that's trying to get into the housing market. Now, whether that on its own would be enough to uh, win over a large enough share of younger voters is questionable because one of the things that I've noticed or found is that uh, one of the areas where there's the biggest policy gap between younger generations and older generations is actually on social issues, not economic issues. So younger people are particularly left-wing compared to older generations on issues like sexuality and immigration and issues relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So the coalition's strong stance against The Voice, for instance, may not have done them any favours with Gen Z. Um, so... Uh, one thing we found was um, on The Voice, it's probably something like 60% or a bit over 60% of Gen Z voters voted yes. Um, so that was an, an issue where Gen Z voters were broadly very supportive, even though the electorate as a whole was not. And by taking a very strong position opposed to uh, The Voice, the coalition may have won a short-term political victory. Um, but they may have just done one more thing that's made them seem like a party that a lot of, not all, but a lot of younger voters may not want to support. 
And I guess, you know, politics changes. The political midpoint of the electorate moves over time and parties adjust, right? They move to the left, it moves to the right, moves in ways that can't really be defined as left or right, you know. I think we see that a lot on issues around like same-sex marriage and acceptance of gay people. You know, there's some controversy around those issues today, but it's moved a tremendous distance since the 90s. And so, yes, it is possible that, you know, if the country is just a bit more left-wing, then the coalition just needs to get a bit less conservative and the political midpoint might move and everything might continue as normal. But I do think that has been something we've seen that the coalition has had trouble with because of their conservative base. Uh, you know, when it comes to appealing to teal electorates or places like that. So I come back to the idea that it's it's a difficult transition. Like it's it's absolutely not the case that they can't do it um, or that it's impossible or that those voters can't be appealed to, but it just it makes it a bit harder. It's a, it's a little bit more trouble and there might come a point where they're kind of trying to counterbalance these contradictory things. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, politics is cyclical and so I think... It's a brave call to, you know, make the prediction that a major political party is about to die. I think that the most likely outcome is the coalition adapts. It finds policy issues on which it can get away with moving on that makes it more appealing to younger voters and it remains competitive. That seems like the most likely outcome. Uh, The coalition has been politically very successful since roughly 1950 and the most likely outcomes would, to me, seem that they will adapt as much as or as little as necessary, I guess, but adapt much as is necessary to remain competitive uh, and continue to win elections. But yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely possible that the generational differences are big enough that it will generate some sort of change. Either the coalition will drop some socially conservative positions, which it's done before. It's, you know, it's been more or less playing dead on abortion for decades because it's even though elements of the coalition's sort of activist base and even its parliamentary party, you know, would like to see changes there, those changes are very unpopular in the electorate. So it doesn't try and wind back access to abortion. Um, It's largely accepted same-sex marriage since the plebiscite in 2017. Um, And so the most likely outcome, I think, is on some of the social issues that it shifts to the political centre to remain relevant. But you're right that there are elements within the coalition that are actively fighting such a move at the moment. Um, you Peter Credlin kind of liberals that believe that any compromise is a political mistake, um, which ironically I think would actually make the, the coalition parties far less competitive with younger generations. And to be clear, we are not predicting the death of the coalition here. That is not what either Sean or myself is saying. It will have political ramifications, whether those are the coalition shifting to remain competitive or if they don't then it might make the coalition less competitive in certain areas. We've talked a lot about the coalition, but we haven't really talked very much about that inter-left relationship between Labor and the Greens because Labor has remained the dominant part of that left, you know, that that group of people who give their two-party preferred vote to Labor. We're now at a point where about 20% of the electorate don't vote for Labor but give their 2PP to Labor. And if these trends continue, you would expect... Within that, the Greens do better. There's more places where the Greens are competing with Labor. And again, Labor might adapt and be able to adjust to that future, but um, it would be a challenge for them as well. Yeah. So one thing I note in the report is that the biggest beneficiaries of of these generational shifts since roughly the, the early 2000s have been the Greens. So initially, Labor, in the 90s, Labor looked like it might be the beneficiary of, of younger voters being more left-wing than their predecessors. 
But then the Greens sort of emerged as a major rival on the left, and they've been soaking up a lot of these what you might call excess left-wing young people since then. And as we've seen, they've grown as a party. Now, the growth has its moments, you know, it jumps and then it stalls or goes backwards a little bit and then jumps again. And, and you know, they may eventually hit a ceiling that, that means the Greens can't go any further. But I, once again, I'm not sure we've necessarily hit that ceiling just yet and, and political trends tend to not be linear. So you don't know when the trends all of a sudden are going to turn around and go the other way. And it probably will at some point. But, uh, you know, I don't, there weren't too many people predicting the Greens were going to pick up three lower house seats in the last election. Um, it happened in and, and we got a burst in, in inner city Brisbane at the last election. They may not pick up another lower house seat for two or three more federal elections and then they may pick up another one. Nobody knows. But certainly what we're seeing is Gen Z in particular, more than prior generations, has a very big Greens vote. Um, and we're actually seeing the Greens actually, I think, become a bit more concentrated. So if we went back, say, 10 or 15 years ago, the Greens are a little bit more evenly spread out. And it's becoming increasingly concentrated. It's becoming a youth vote and particularly a, a sort of young renter vote. The, I think the Greens are sort of finding its its niche in the political ecosystem. It's developing a, you could call it a material base. Right? So, you know, the Labor Party's traditional material base was sort of like the working class and elements of the middle class and the coalitions was sort of the, the rest of the middle class and owners of capital, small business owners. And the Greens are sort of developing this base at the moment, sort of younger people, particularly younger renters. Now, the question is, is it younger people or is it this generation? And the consequences of the answer to that question could be quite big. If it's age, if it's younger people and these people stop being Greens as they age and become Labor voters or coalition voters, then that benefits the Greens less and it, there's less of a long-term impact. But if it's Gen Z voters are Greens voters and, they, and a lot of them stay Greens voters as they age, that will naturally mean that the Greens share of the electorate increases over time. We obviously don't know the answer to that, but I also think like from a small C conservative approach to these things is usually it's probably a bit of both, right? And that's probably what you've seen there is that it's a both, it's a little from column A, a little from column B to quote Abe Simpson. So that will be very interesting to see and something to watch in coming elections. There's no reason to believe that the trend we've seen over the last few elections has finished playing out just yet. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Sean, for joining me. Thanks, Ben. And we're going to link to Sean's report on the post where this podcast goes up, so definitely check it out. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher Rowe for writing music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.